Welcome back to the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. On today's episode, Darwin hosts Kevin Posey, a subject matter expert in RAQA with 25 years of experience in the medical device field, giving him a range of experience and insights. Darwin and Kevin discuss the difference in a big versus small company in regards to delegation and responsibilities, the strategic importance of regulatory and quality to medtech companies, and hiring strategies relevant to regulatory and quality crossover talent. Well, I'm so excited. I want to give a warm welcome to our next guest on the SSI Executive Conversations podcast, Kevin Posey. Kevin started his career in the Air Force, where he spent seven years as an aircraft and weapons systems engineer. After completing his service, he entered into the medical device world where he's been over the past 20 years. An expert in quality and regulatory affairs that's been involved in numerous successful projects and launches across a, a variety of sizes of companies. Previously, the head of regulatory and quality at Monogram Orthopedics. It's an honor to welcome you to the show, Kevin. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Darwin. I really appreciate the, the time you guys are providing here also. No, absolutely. So let's let's jump right in. I know we've had a, a lot of interesting conversations here in the past around some of these topics that we want to talk about. And so before we get started in some specifics, maybe you could give our audience a little bit of a brief synopsis of, of your fantastic background and career. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. I think you covered it re- relatively well. Um, besides the seven years uh, with the Department of the Air Force, I also spent three years in aerospace and defense with uh, a couple of different divisions of Boeing. Great start to my career. That's my background. But uh, about 25 years ago, made the change over to med device and really haven't looked back. So 25 wonderful years uh, of medical devices, a smattering here of in vitro diagnostics and a taste of uh, uh, biologics or actually combo devices. It's been an interesting uh, ride since then. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about some of that here with you. What made you What made you enter into uh, the medical device space? That's an interesting thing. I mean, it's a, it's a longer story probably over <laughs> a, over an adult beverage. But uh, okay. my background is I had some exposure to the medical area through some uh, volunteer activity. Really got fascinated with the the, the medical area, and uh, it was honestly it was a contract or contact from a recruiter out of the blue based on the background that I had from my time in aerospace, which was very strongly software focused. Um, yeah, and that you know, I really haven't looked back since then. Um, yeah. So, see, recruiters do add value sometimes. Absolutely, so that's a call that was good. So, now that's awesome, and I know I know that you also have a passion for outcomes, for positive patient outcomes, and the benefit it brings uh, to patient populations. So, let so your your experience is really broad in terms of regulatory and quality, and also in terms of large right. companies versus startups or, or mid-caps. So I think what I'd like for you to do is kind of share your perspective relevant to resources and responsibilities in, in terms of how you look at that. Yeah, and there's quite a bit of variety between what you just described there, between you know the large, large companies that have a very a much more siloed, not necessarily in the negative approach, but a very focused approach to breaking down the med device development and commercialization process versus the small companies that have to do the same thing with fewer or even in some cases one person covering a a wide variety of those roles, uh, which can create some interesting challenges on the resource side and basically even some internal mental conflict of interest uh, between some of the roles. 
that's yes. the nature of particularly the small uh, or startup company. No, I think that I think that's said really well. And <clears throat> big companies tend to move slower at times. At the same time, they typically have more resources and the ability to train better. But as you you, you mentioned, I think the word word siloed. Sometimes you don't get to get your hands in as many things, and so that's uh, for the right person and personality and somebody that likes to be able to maybe expand and learn in a quicker going to a startup or growing mid-cap you can get your hands in more things get more responsibilities maybe a little bit sooner in your career absolutely would agree with that um there is a bit of a dichotomy in the large companies where uh where if you're a high impact player of course they tend to not want you to move around so even though yes. in, in a perfect world you are the ideal candidate to for the company to keep you long-term, keep you interested, to develop you in a broader sense, as opposed to you know deeper in in your own particular vertical at the point that point, yeah, it can be a challenge. I've seen that. Um, yes. that really comes down to culture and and how much the the culture is driven by CEO on down as far as really focusing on people development and uh, maximizing their use. Uh, uh, one company that was actually considered uh, the eighth uh, type of waste, so in a kind of a lean perspective, the eighth waste is a waste of human potential. Yes. Uh, and I really resonated with that. And that's true at, at every at every level of company in my experience. So that's true also even in the small companies. Well, so we're going to talk about certain aspects of what you just said as we get into get into this conversation further, but there's so much about what you just said that to me that's so important. And anytime, uh, I believe in so many ways, we're either growing or, or we're declining. From, and, and I think, you know, relationships from a cultural standpoint, from a business standpoint, things don't tend to stand still. And so if you have, you look at annual voluntary turnover, we're going to talk about that more in detail here later, but a quarter of all talent walks out every single year, and it's typically not the people that you want. So if you're not creating a pathway for career growth and for people to be engaged, and you're going to keep somebody in a spot because it's better for the company, but they're ready for the next step, you're going to be at risk for losing them anyway. And so I think what you just said earlier is really, really smart in terms of the eighth uh, waste relevant to lean. So... In terms of strategy, so I'm, I mean, my background's clinical and then 12 years in corporate America, sales, business, development, marketing. I think companies typically start out R&D driven if it's a new creation, unless it was acquired, sales, marketing, business development driven. I personally, we do a lot of work in RAQA, I have a passion for RAQA, and I believe that regulatory quality have to have a seat at the stakeholder table. There's just so much. Let's just take quality. In MedTech, annually, the average warning letter for companies, 5 million plus, and it's 6 billion altogether for the year. And if you look at the reasons why, according to the FDA, if you look at the top seven to 10, poor leadership, cutting corners, poor design quality, uh, using the product for the inappropriate, uh, for the predicate device for the inappropriate substantial equivalence uh, uh, that, that it was approved for, for the 510K. So it all comes back to leadership, uh, wrong person or wrong interpretation of guidelines. So the risk there is enormous. So I'd love your take on the importance of RAQA having a seat at the table at, at, at a strategic level at any medical device company. Yeah, I, I couldn't say it any stronger than you already have, but to, to back that up, um, 
you start particularly from a, a small company perspective, it's relatively common for startups to not have <clears throat> dedicated regulatory guidance. It, you know, it's oftentimes uh, some kind of a consultant contractor or it's a you know founding medical officer who understands the intended use, but they're kind of working their way into some of the important, uh, really the, the critical regulatory strategy, which in many ways drives the, the quality strategy as well. And this just doesn't happen early enough, in my opinion. Uh, and that's you know across the industry. I, it's something I'd love to see change. Uh, and with a lot of with with a constantly changing regulatory market, a regulatory background, uh, MDR being a great example of that is you really yes. need to think two or three steps ahead. It's not just it can't be get us to commercialization as fast as possible. I mean, yes, that that's important for the financial side of the business, but to really drive consistent and effective quality regulatory strategy, you got to think next next level beyond that. Can't be, uh, let's just get this approved in, in the US, get it cleared under a 510K and then commercialize the heck out of it and then decide later what we're going to do. You're going to redo things or you're going to take some, some shortcuts. And I think as you said, or make some compromise decisions that are going to be, you know, be painful to undo later on. And you're going to shoot yourself in the foot relevant to uh, fines, your risk, and you're opening yourself up to a lot of potential pain, particularly relevant to opportunity costs, because when that happens, your ability to be on the market, you know, typically when you get that warning letter, you're in that situation, you're, you're not selling product. And on top of that, you're adding shipping costs to, 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 for recalls and vigilance and additional issues and spending more money on your complaints process as well. Absolutely. And those are particularly for, you know, are inordinately impactful in a negative sense for uh, this, you know, smaller the company is. Uh, in my opinion, that all it takes is one, even a field action, which is not a real recall, can be the end of a small company, but uh, certainly a recall because of all the costs plus the the negatives, uh, negative publicity if that comes with a recall um, or, you know, worse is a warning letter combined with that warning letter that leads to a recall is in the U.S. is pretty much the end of a small company or can be anyways. Oh, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the negative publicity, for, forget the, I mean, obviously the negative outcome to patients and their families and that that that's number one, but number two, I think, Almost every in every single situation, there's at least one company that ends up dropping stock value by if they're publicly traded by over ten percent. So it's at a least, huge yeah. shareholder, and it's a huge black eye. So you you mentioned the MDR, and we did a webinar on the changes to the MDR and how that's going to affect because some people look at it, you know, two thousand twenty-seven, but it's not two thousand twenty-seven. There's certain things that have to be in place relevant to your notified body and your quality management system by this next fall. So we did a webinar this last year on that. Let's talk a little bit about your experience there and how that ties into the strategy relevant to clinical data. Absolutely. I mean, if we stay on kind of a little bit of the same tack, <clears throat> one of the things that consistently I've seen uh, an opportunity missed is the opportunity that's taken is okay we need to keep our products on the market we, we need to take that ce mark under mdd and and now get it updated for mdr with our notified body 
and that being now generally a higher burden or a including now a burden on some clinical data, some real world evidence to support safety and effectiveness. Uh, and miss the opportunity to to really drive that from a strategic perspective. Um, you know, if we take one quick sidestep, but you know, there's a lot of complaints and I think wow, widely earned as far as MDR and how it was implemented, approached. And that's now our topic today. Right. My point is uh, a strategic company is going to take it, okay, this is what is, how do we make the most of it? Yeah, you can be com minimally compliant and keep your product selling, or you can leverage that now uh, as a potential differentiator. You know, it's kind of a, a, a MBA kind of focus on Porter's Five Forces. How do we differentiate from other companies? If we're going to gather clinical data, why don't we gather clinical data that also now supports our uh, our uh Basically, how much better we are than our competitors, our uh, superiority claims, what I was trying to get to. Uh, right. Why not do that? It's it's potentially a, a very minor add-on to what you're going to do. So you get two two things, two benefits potentially for the price of one. You get that continued access to the market with MDR approval, but now you've got clinical data to also substantiate the superiority. Um, uh, so you know the superiority is I think back to where most of us are focused, which is helping the patient solve the clinical problem, right? We want to solve the clinical problem uh, for yes. the patient. Uh, secondarily to that, ideally in the in the culture would be okay. First is the patient. Second is now to do that, the company has to continue to exist, and we're we're generally talking about public companies. So you need to be able to show a profit. So how do you how do you then bring in profitability? One is by Helping the, the the doctor, the surgeon, the clinician, help them be more efficient, more effective, and more profitable. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, we could go off on that a little bit. Well, I think I'll uh, stop on that uh, point. I, but no, I love. I mean, yeah, I think we could talk. We can talk the whole podcast yeah. just on that. And there's so many things that you've said that are that are they're so smart and accurate. And you look at pathway to get on market. You know, a much higher percentage, right? Med device is 510K. So there's there's more challenges with clinical evidence generation. And so, uh, you know, my my good friend Bernie Haffey, voice of, of, of the customer, and in our case, voice of the patient, the clinician, followed by voice of the employee, focused on voice of, of the patient, the clinician, and then voice of the stakeholder. If you if you if you sort of target in that category, the stakeholder is going to be happy because you're going to grow because you're bringing positive outcomes. So what a smart way to talk about why not only is that important because it's the right thing to do, but you're you're improving the data that you have that proves outcome, which is going to benefit you in the long run as well. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think that's that's awesome. So orthopedics, you, that's you know one of many areas that you've got a strong background in terms of complexity, new technology, we talked about sensors now being put on some of these implants. We talked about surgical, surgical prep for the implant. As robotic platforms continue, uh, they're going to continue to grow in the marketplace in, in that microsystem that's kind of exploding. So I know we've had conversations around this before, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that, uh, understanding complexity and and how that ties in into risk as we move into this new world of software in a medical device, software as a medical device, et cetera. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think part of that is inherently with uh, with particularly, with, I would, if I focus on new companies, startup companies, usually that's going to be about driving some new technology into the market, things that don't exist, new, you know, first time to market, new to market, um, 
technology. So we're seeing a lot of that uh, around artificial intelligence and machine learning, at least as supportive tools. Uh, there's, so there's therefore also a lot of guidance coming out from the agency and other uh, notified bodies and uh, competent authorities. But the technology is, is where we grow. And, and if that's aligned with, and this is where quality regulatory can help, if that's aligned with the first, you know, appropriately, effectively, and safely dealing with the underlying condition, right, the intended use, that's awesome. Uh, and and uh, then if it secondarily supports the business case, the company's more successful, more profitable, the clinician's more profitable, um, then, then you've got a case, you know, strong case for that technology really being a significant enhancement versus, hey, let's do the same thing a different way, but it's, it's not, it's, you know, in the 510k perspective, it's maybe substantially equivalent with some minor differences, but it really hasn't moved the clinical application or the clinical solution forward. Um, those generally, I think they tend to tend to fall behind, uh, but the significant, significant advancements, um, you know, the, the data science between AI and, and ML is it's very interesting to me. I'm looking at it in significant applications in, you know, much more rapid assessment of big data sets, you know, which could include things like CT scans or MRIs, where you've got um, the fundamental data is, is very dense. There's a lot of information there and humans really just can't deal with it. You can put up a, an X-ray and a trained uh, X-ray technologist, uh, a doctor can interpret but AI can help with that and do it a lot faster. So I, I'm excited about some things like that. Um, and then some other applications that are are, are still out there uh, that I've looked at had great interest, in, have great, great potential, but they're going to face some quality and regulatory uh, hurdles because they're new to the market. And uh, I think rightfully so. Uh, someone like the FDA, the agency is going to be a little skeptical at first, you know. And God, we trust all others bring data. Uh, absolutely. So we got to show them the data that that you're going to effectively address the intended use, and you're going to be safe while you're doing it. Uh, and there's not there's not a whole lot of good examples yet for that technology yet in some of those areas, the AI and machine learning. So this last week, I was a part of uh, Tony Robbins' uh, business mastery class. And they had a section on artificial intelligence and just showed just in the last eight months the change in technology. And it was it was unbelievable. And it's yeah, it's it's moving forward like light. Years. It's coming. It, it's coming whether we like it or not, whether we're ready for, for it or not. And to your point, if you don't have the right regulatory and quality talent strategically, that ties into where you want the company to go. And because you, you can do the right thing at the wrong time. Right. I mean, you yes. do the wrong thing at the wrong time, doesn't matter, period, right? But you can do the absolute right thing and you can do it at the wrong time and it can be devastating. And so I think relevant to technology and to what you just said, that is, that's so smart and, and, and accurate. So we're at the halfway point before we get into this next question. Uh, hiring the right talent at the right time that matches your company culture in an efficient manner to avoid the cost of the mishire and have less wasted resources. If you don't have employee engagement with the right people, um, it stunts growth and can lose to all, lead to all kinds of challenges. So our Top Town Accelerant program helps our partners hire more efficiently while also customizing the process for cultural fit. So you avoid the cost of the mishire and have less wasted resources. Uh, we'd love to show it. If anybody is looking to improve their processes, we'd love to show you how our partners are benefiting in the marketplace. On our next question here, as we move into the second half of this, 
Uh, we talk a lot about, um, you know, as a piggyback to that top town accelerant promo there, a selfless promo, what, <laughs> it, you know, in terms of hiring for culture. And so as, you know, as a, as a leader, talk about, we're going to talk about both sides of this coin, but talk about what's important as you bring on talent and developing a, a team and how that relates to the specific skill and the cultural fit. Yeah, great question. Um, I, one of the things I think it starts with what's got what has to be important. Yeah, assessing uh, cultural fit is important for both sides. And what I have found, particularly as a candidate, many times myself, is assessing a company for cultural fit is very difficult. Um, I think it's it's easier from the the company side, and it is incredibly important. You do want to have fit, but. It also means that the company really needs to have a enough self-awareness of what the culture really is uh, yes. and how that's being. Um, and there's a difference between how a CEO, a VP, um, how they think the culture is versus what it really is. And there, there, there are a variety of tools for kind of assessing that. There, you know, internal surveys are are one. Um, ongoing, you know, discussions, one-on-ones or skip level meetings um, focused on culture. And then there's some other tools. I mean, that's not the, the point of today's discussion, but super important. Um, one of the well, challenges I, I, is how, how do we how do we train our candidates how to assess culture? How, what are the deep questions you're going to ask in an interview? Um, rather, you know, yeah, you want to know, okay, what's the job description? Who do you report to? What's the, what's the organization? Um, but how do you assess culture? And that, that for me, I'll tell you, that's an area I'm still working at. So I, uh, this is, yeah, I love this stuff. I could talk about this kind of stuff all day. Uh, I could when, too. You know, why do companies succeed and fail? Over half of startups don't make it a year. Over half of those that are left don't make it five years and well over 70. Uh, I always say over 70. I recently heard it's almost 85% of companies don't make it 10 years across all industries. So leadership relevant to mission and vision, company alignment or misalignment and the wrong town or the right town are always four that are in the top seven. And I would argue that the others come back to the wrong leadership or vision anyway. And so understanding that is, is vitally important. And so if you as a hiring manager, too many companies do it transactionally. If you, you do transactional, you get transactional, whether you're, you're hiring or whether you're going through the interview process. But if as a candidate, and I presented it at, at, at RAPS, and this was a part of, of, of the aspect of that presentation from a candidate standpoint, if they're not asking you about your personal why, if they're not talking about the mission and the vision, and you have to ask, that's a, that's that, that may not be a red flag, but it's a yellow flag because that's more transactional. And if you don't understand that, it's going to, to determine your fit. It's, it's going to determine whether or not. So that's one thing to certainly look at. But the other thing is understanding how open the company is to crossover talent, because if they're not very open to it, then the only way you're going to have an opportunity to grow is if the company does well from a vertical standpoint or within that department. You're going to be typically less likely to move over horizontally, maybe to, you know, from RA to QA or engineering or product management, because you have the skills, you have high emotional intelligence, you're excited and and you could apply that someplace else, and they've already got the good person, but they're, if they're not open to those type of crossover skills, usually you you tend to be more pigeonholed. Absolutely agree with that. Um, seen it over and over again, and a lot of times, particularly that crossover between the quality and regulatory function, is an important one. 
Uh, quality tends to be a very solid basis for someone to understand compliance and then get into the regulatory, which I've, I've seen people have different backgrounds, but in my perspective, regulatory, you have a much larger gray area to deal with. Quality is, tends to be it's either compliant or non-compliant. There's still some gray area, but once you're comfortable with that, the, the individuals who can think more strategically, can think on their feet, can uh, can interact with regulatory bodies with um, without being defensive of the company and trying to think about you know the regulatory regulators side of the the discussion. The more they can do that, the more they're going to talk successfully in the gray area and be that much more impactful on the company. Um, so developing that in in the organization, in my opinion, is priceless. Uh, hiring hiring for that it starts with that, um, but then being able to develop that. Um, seen too many companies that are so cost constrained that that training gets bypassed, mm. development gets bypassed because it's all about surviving to the next uh, project milestone. Um, and may, you know, in some areas that maybe that's unavoidable, but it is uh, best case that then you're treading water uh, and your your company's getting ready to start. You know, get get tired and you're not going to be able to tread water. Um, so. Uh, burnout well, and fatigue and, and are a very real thing. Absolutely. And there's you know, there's a couple different things that, that that made me think of as you talked about that. But again, I, I think we mentioned earlier, annual voluntary turnover. Most people know the cost of mishires. I mean, Jack Welch used to say that companies pay more money in mishires than they do annual corporate taxes. And obviously, GE mm, Healthcare yeah. is an enormous company. So most people are aware, you know, it could be anywhere from four to 15 times the, the cost of that annual position, depending on the responsibilities. But annual voluntary turnover is 25% across all industries. So a quarter of the talent walks out every single year. And I would suggest that that's typically not the person that you want to leave. You know, the person that's going to go on a pit will stay for forever, if, if typically, if you let them. So a lot of data behind that shows that those people are, are, are leaving because either A, they don't, they don't feel appreciated. So the company doesn't have any uh, appreciation programs, or maybe there's a le uh, leadership there relevant to, to conversation appreciation. They don't feel respected or, or, or like their immediate leader, or they feel pigeonholed. They don't see a pathway for growth. 70% said, I have to leave the company in order to grow my career, which shows that that company probably doesn't have career ladders either. So when it comes to crossover talent, not only is it important in terms of bringing in talent, because I think, you know, if they don't fit the culture, if they don't have emotional intelligence and play well with others, they can be a 12 out of 10, but you shouldn't hire them. So right. fitting the culture, I think it's vitally important coming in, but to keep those people and and then not to leave, which, as you said earlier, then it puts more strain on your team relevant to resources. And then it takes time to backfill that person and, and the cost there. I think it's so important to have a position as a company on how open you are to crossover time and actually talk about it relevant to training and appreciation, not just, you know, it's like your mission statement. You can't or your design controls. You can't do them once and put them in a drawer and never talk about them again. Yeah, I mean. Wow, it's a ton of content there. I completely agree with all those facts. Uh, seeing, having seen it firsthand, and having worked actively as a leader to 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 fight those things, because I've seen it and 
Now, um, company before before my most recent one, uh, I think it was a great case study. Executive leadership at the site was amazing. Um, and it was a good combination of both KPIs, which I think definitely have a place in business, but really the the human basis behind them and having a, a target on attacking turnover in positive ways was extremely effective. And that company was acquired, I think, partly because of that um, execution on, on an operational quality regulatory scale. So I'm a little biased there, but overall, I mean, starting with operational was an excellent execution, which made them a, a very, very profitable uh, purchase target. Mm. So all that's, you know, just a second bit of data, not that you needed it to, su to suggest that uh, dealing with the addressable causes of turnover is huge. And the companies that can least afford that turnover, the, the small companies don't have the infrastructure typically to deal with that internally. Uh, many of them have, you know, essentially no human resource department. Uh, and I would suggest some of it, you know, ties back to, uh, it's not the, the, the answer itself, but having clear expectations. So, um, a person joining the company, even if they're a cultural fit, um, ideally isn't thinking about, oh, I want to I want to spread out. I want to do sales. I want to do marketing. I want to do field service. You hire them for the role. They need to be effective in that. And then it's uh, then your development process would say, all right, you've done well here. Um, we can bring someone, you know, hire someone to, to, to backfill you at the right time. Where else do you want to go? What's your interest? And then right. and actively work to develop that because, like I said, you want to that high performing 10 or 20 percent you want to keep because they're going to perform uh, in that manner elsewhere most likely uh, but it's got to start with clear expectations with the clear job description um, regular performance management or surprisingly is not a common thing um, right so let people know how they're doing it can be as simple as hey walk you know walking by and giving um, valid directed praise People love to be recognized for what they're doing, what they're doing right. Uh, you know, uh, I, I always love the, the 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 saying: "Praise publicly and um, you know, punish is not the right word, but handle noncompliance privately." Yes, so if they've got an area of uh, work. You handle that privately, not in front of the the team. Uh, that's how you build rapport, how you build trust, and support those high performing individuals. So one of the things that came to mind as you were talking about that and, and, and with startups and, you know, growing uh, mid caps, things are going to change. And so the less communication that you have and the less interaction you have with leadership and you take the time strategically to think about uh, the business where it's going versus just the inside of the business. You really have to think about how that position is going to change over the next six to 24 months. Yeah. Because it's it's going to change one way or another. And so to your point, there could be things that somebody might want to grow into. And we kind of talked about that earlier. And there's some people who be like, you know, I, this is really what I want to do. But at the same time, if you're having those conversations and, and maybe you have somebody that gets involved in a project, even if they don't want to move into that particular area, but they get that cross-pollination, they're going to work well as a teammate because now they're also seeing aspects from that seat that they didn't maybe understand previously. Oh, well, yeah, that, yeah, you just got blew my mind. That's another great point is 
where culture breaks down is when the, when the silos become about all right what 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 do I have to do what are you doing to me why are you doing this to me um, and it goes both ways uh, yes and culture is the only way it's going you're going to get beyond that is you have to be able to put yourself in that other other person's role to see what they're seeing um, you know again talking about that last company I think that what you brought up there just again blew my mind because that's exactly why that site that uh, that uh, business unit of the company was so successful is um, the trust between myself and operations leaders uh, and seeing what was going on on each other's side and being there to help one another to benefit the company but really it started with helping each other it was you know this human wow. connection uh, and therefore not being transactional all right if i do this then you're going to do this from you can't you know you have to get away from transactional it's not completely avoidable but when the basis is connection uh, and culture, then all things are possible. Right? I think yeah, that's so smart. And, you know, Mark Lore, who sold Jet.com, I think for like half $500 million or something crazy like that. He said every single interaction that you have with people on your team, or if you're selling a business or you're doing a, a transaction, you should look at it like you're going to do 100 of those, not one. Um, and if you get a little less out of it than you want, but you gain trust, you're, it's going to lead to more positive interactions and in, uh, in, in whatever that is down the road. And I think that goes really well with what you just said. Um, yeah. So as we finish up here, I I, I think I'm going to have to have you on again to talk about some other topics. Because <laughs> I, I would really love that. I would love that conversation. But you are somebody, you know, not only strong technical experience, but high emotional intelligence and people skills. And so when it comes to the FDA, one of the things I love about regulatory, I love regulatory and quality, but regulatory is about high emotional intelligence, about de-escalation. It's about leading stakeholders. And so if you don't interact with the FDA, if your soft skills and, and how you listen and, and, and treat people, if, if it's a reactive versus a proactive approach, you can open the spotlight to problems. So I'd love for you to talk about that relevant to interacting with governing bodies with the FDA from your, your experience. Absolutely. Yeah, you're spot on. Um, you know, one of the internal jokes, and I've actually shared this with the people I've known, either who are at the agency or former agency, is it's true. FDA are people too. Um, <laughs> so yes. the emotional intelligence of realizing that you're, you know, and again, back to can you put yourself in their role and understand and make it make the interaction with the agency less transactional, more connection. Uh, my experience is that those individuals, FDA investigators are really about wanting to make sure companies are doing the right thing. Uh, the training, the structure don't always, you know, makes that more difficult. Uh, but that I, that I have found fundamentally to be the goal. So I've been successful in my my own audits, both with the, with the agency as well as notified bodies with that emotional intelligence, connecting with them um, and speaking openly. Now there, there's, from the company side, of course, there is the risk. I don't want to put the company in a compromised position ever. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that, and that's, uh, that can be a tough gray area. So as a, as a, senior person in quality regulatory you have to come to that place of understanding where where you're at in the gray area um several companies ago uh, working with the ceo we came up with this idea of a compliance margin and so think of it as you know if you've got this gray area um the financial side would push you towards whatever the whatever the side of that margin is the the most cost effective 
not you know it's not a bad thing by itself on a financial side but that comes with a with a high risk of regulatory action because interpretations do vary because it's naturally it's a gray area so working you know work, working with your agency contacts your notified by auditors to understand that and steer the company towards having some positive margin don't don't ride right on the edge um, take advantage of the gray area appropriately but then you know manage the relationships and be open as as much as you can legally uh, there are there are some boundaries there but right um really because the the point of it is there's a reason why FDA has such strong regulatory power and why uh, FDA investigators have arrest authority some of them you know they they are um, peace officers and they can carry firearms they have arrest authority unfortunately there's a good reason for that because companies have done the wrong thing because right. just to, just for profit they don't they don't assume everyone is that but they have that flexibility uh, to engage in that power and of course other regulatory um, actions such as warning letters and consent decrees are uh, um, much larger uh, tools or much heavier weight tools they can use to get compliance but if it starts with um, it's always escalatory if at the point of being a, a quality regulatory leader that emotional intelligence is applied and you understand their perspective you're going to be much more successful um, from the get-go and focus on the common goal which is safe and effective products that help the patient help the clinician um, that's what's realistically long-term that's what's good business good practice uh, it's what makes companies the most profitable. If you have a reputation for safe and effective products, you're going to do okay. Um, so I think that's great, and I, I would I would just finish with a piggyback off that is everybody's busy, and the, the FDA auditor probably has a little bit more on their plate than they'd like. And so yeah. even from a leadership standpoint or a people standpoint, it, it, meeting people where they're at whether that's you know trying to move up or, 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 or move down, whatever that, that looks like. But really understanding is, obviously you have to know your product, your quality management system. You have to know, you have to be able to answer questions and, and have done your homework, so, so to speak, to prepare for yes. that. But at the same time, understanding what they need and where they're coming from so that you, know, you have that connectivity is most likely gonna lead to that process being more efficient. Indeed. It's a it's a powerful area where we can we can actually do a lot as within the quality regulatory function is to understand both sides of the discussion and the, the commonality of that that focus on safe and effective products. Um, that's what the agency wants. That's what we want. Let's figure out a way to get there. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time, and we appreciate you bringing your your value and your experience to. You know our following and, and i'll just uh finish up with our following just what he talked about in terms of your talent management process to bring on the right talent if it matched the quality management system for the product or service you provide would that be a good thing or a bad thing uh, anything that's transactional gets transactional results so yeah. thanks so much for your time kevin uh really appreciate it and look forward to our next conversation thank you darwin appreciate the time and effort for you and your team this is a, an important topic Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. If you'd like to see more, please follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our YouTube and RSS. Visit SureXSolutions.com to learn more about SSI and receive a complimentary consultation.